Yeah, okay. It's good to be with you guys. And it's very good to be uh, back in Wisconsin after exile uh, to Missouri for about four years. Um, so uh, I don't want you to be uh, seduced into believing that Joel called me and asked me to come up and speak to you. I actually reached out to Joel just to see if I could spend some time with them because lately, uh, maybe it's just where I am in my life, I've been seeking out people that inspire me just to spend time with them. And Joel and Christy are those folks. And, and Tim and his family, Tim Brudnicki, um, another couple that, that always have kind of lit my fire. So um, we wanted to come to Eau Claire. And I have so much respect for you guys. I've only been with you as a, you know, uh, uh, to worship on a Sunday a couple times. And every time I felt like this is such a healthy place. So, so I'm here to get from you guys. So it just so happens that how about you preach as well? So, uh, but anyways, um, let's see if I can, oh, there I go. I said I wouldn't point at that and I did already. Play? Ah, yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, I want to talk to you. If, if you have a Bible, the, the only text I think you'll need will be in first Samuel, uh, chapter 2, um, but uh, I, I, what I'd love to do is just share with you some of the things that are happening in my life and how I'm making sense um, of them um, and how I feel like God is teaching me. Uh, anyone in here about 40 years old? Yeah, okay, about, yeah. When you turned 40, did your life fall apart suddenly? <laughs> that happened to me. <laughs> um, so I, I recently turned 40 and all of a sudden it's just like things don't, the whole midlife crisis, like I don't have the money to buy a drop top red Corvette <laughs> and I'm not about to dye my hair blonde or something like that, but I do think I'm experiencing a bit of a midlife crisis. Um, and things that seemed to make sense to me Things that were, uh, seemed like they were going as they should all of a sudden were not. And I don't know if that's uh, because I'm 40 or not. Um, but we, uh, we, me and my wife have had a desire to work in doing ministry and learning to be pastors, learning to uh, speak about God's word uh, precisely and in a way that helps people uh, see God and, you know, my ambition is not just to introduce people to the Bible, uh, but how Scripture points away from itself, in a sense, to the living God. That's been my passion for, since I became a Christian, about 20 years now. Uh, God opened a door for us to move to St. Louis because some of our friends were in the ministry there, and they uh, made a way for us to come and get paid to do that. And uh, so we moved there in 2014, and to our surprise, by 2016, we were leading the church. <laughs> uh, now, that wasn't necessarily my goal, at least not that early. Uh, but so we, we, um, we accepted that uh, opportunity. We were grateful for it, uh, humbled by it. Uh, but also, I, I think I was a little too big for my britches. Do you, do you know that phrase? Has that made it up here? Okay. <laughs> Um, so, uh, 
yeah, so all of a sudden I'm leading a church. It's like really my first job or time in the ministry. And our transition into leading the church was not pleasant. There were, if you, if you remember, St. Louis hosted the big uh, uh, REACH conference, which I'm so happy to say is in the past. <laughs> I'm sure you guys had a great time. Yeah. For us, it was, uh, it was a lot of work. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank my wife. She was the, uh, well, no, I'll take that thank you because I had to live with the conference planner. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, our, our transition in was, it was, uh, it was a surprise for everybody. Um, and uh, so it took about a year just to bring some peace to the church and and humble out and realize that this was hard for everyone. You know, I not not take things personally. But after about another year of that, it became clear to, to me that we were kind of there as transition people to help. We weren't the long-term leaders there. And not because people didn't want us to be the leader there or because I didn't feel like we could do it or learn how to do it well, but it just it felt like, yeah, these guys needed a healthy transition, and I thank God that we were able to, to be here and learn from that. Uh, but then we had to, we, it was clear we needed to step back. And, and I personally, um, I think there were a lot of things in my life that I was hiding behind. Uh, did you know that the Bible, uh, the church, the mission of the church um, can all be idolatrous? Did you know that? You can hide behind, even scripture can be a, a mask that you wear. And while I felt like I had kind of the pieces of the puzzle, and I think puzzle is a horrible metaphor, so I'll correct that later, but in my mind, who God is, what God wants, what's most important, what's right and what's wrong, and I had all of that figured out, but I think my personal life needed some attention. Um, Just my own heart, my own insecurity. So we, we pulled back. And we moved back to Madison, and then I turned 40 years old. Okay, this is where the drama begins. <laughs> so we get to Madison, and our church in Madison had been through a very difficult time while we were away. A lot of our friends had left our church. Um, and, and we came back to Madison in our heads. We knew that there had been a hard time. But in my head, I'm thinking, well, there at least we know a lot of people and we'll be able to heal. But it was like the most disorienting, confusing experience of walking into my old church to find it completely different. The the people are different. The spirit is different. It's good, but I'm just not used to it. So now I have to spend time trying to put that together while I'm trying to go through my own uh, transformation and collect myself. Does that make sense? I don't know that it does. Sorry, I won't turn this into uh, Jason's therapy session. I know you're not here to just hear about me. Um, But so as we're there, you know, we we come back to Madison and it's been great. We've, you know, been able to face some, it's softened some more hard corners in my life, allowed some of my frustrations in life to kind of die down and find a peace in who I, who I'm, becoming and all of that. Just wait, if you haven't turned 40, you'll probably experience all this. Um, But recently I was meeting with the pastor of a very large church in in Madison and he's a guy who went to the same school I went to and so I, I knew he'd kind of understand where I was coming from and he said something that startled me. He said, um, so, you know, you're 40. Uh, 
It's like you got 25 years, 27 years to serve God left. And 27 years ago, I did the math. I think I did it right. 1992? That feels like yesterday to me. Like that's, that does not feel like a long enough time to get, get it in, like to do what I want to do with my life. But that's not really what uh, uh, was a, uh, a, a, sh- a shot to the chest. It was that he said to serve God. That little lens through which to look at the next 25 to 27 years, if I'm, if I'm lucky, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, normal life expectancy. Um, but to serve God. And it, it became clear to me, like, oh, man, in all of my healing, I've been kind of turned inward too far, maybe. Because my wounds, my fears, my insecurities have become uh, like little versions of or God, eclipsing God. And I've gotten so preoccupied with where I am. And, and there may be seasons where we need to do that, but this was like, yeah, you're actually, uh, you're here to, to serve God. I'm like, man, that's not necessarily the way I've intentionally been looking at my life. So that caused a bit of a more of a wrestling match with God. Um, and I think, I'm, I think I'm starting to see some, something now. Number one, I don't think God is in my pocket. He's not like a jetpack. For, for me or for any denomination or church. He's not the power source with which we tap into to make our dreams come true. The whole, like, God shares our dream. No, we might want to change the, the language there. We, we, I think sometimes I imagine that, that God is there to involve himself in my plans. And when my plans don't work out, what I do is drill down harder on my plans because probably I just don't have the great strategy or the perfect amount of faith. Never, never entertaining the idea that maybe the plan needs to die. <laughs> no, it's a matter of me just having, God will make me successful and bless my plans, bless our plans once I get it right. And that sounds humble. It's a veneer of serving God, but actually at its core is very self-focused and toxic and will mutate your life and the life of faith in ways that you don't want and you won't know that it's happening. Does that, does that make sense to you? Um, so I had you turn to 1 Samuel, but I really want to spend time in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and I, Isaiah, and I have slides for that, so you don't need to turn there. Um, but uh, unless you want to, you're free, free to. But Isaiah f- chapters 40 through 55 have become very important to me um, well, for, for a while now, but more so lately. And I don't know why all of a sudden I turned back to these chapters. But here in the book of Isaiah, have you tried to read Isaiah? Uh, fun time or challenging time? No lies, it's hard. The book of Isaiah is a tough read. Um, lots of poetry, uh, but chapters 40 through 55 really set the foundation for what we encounter on the first pages of the New Testament. It is, it's really drawing hard on this, of what's going on in these chapters. And here you find some of Israel's most enduring expressions of hope, of resilience, of comfort, 
Um, now, they're challenging, and as you find, to hope actually in Yahweh for, for these folks uh, cost a lot. Like, hope is very expensive. I don't know if you've ever, if that makes sense to you. But in order to hope in God will cost you all you have at some level. And, and here in, in these chapters, the prophet is addressing the exiled community. Uh, Israel experienced a couple 9-11s, one around 722 and another one around 586-87. First, uh, the northern tribes uh, ceased to be uh, because of Assyria. Uh, God did that, by the way. It wasn't just that Assyria was stronger than Israel. Uh, then, again, when the southern tribes uh, imitated their older brothers to the north, God sent Babylon to discipline them. And they had spent a long time in uh, crisis, in exile. And I don't think we can overestimate the impact of what happened uh, with the Babylonian exile uh, be because it's, it's not just that exile and being taken from your home. It's not just the loss of land. The loss of land is, is huge, especially for Israel, because the land is connected to God's promises and all that God wants to do, not just for his people, but through his people. It seems to be a kind of staging ground from where the world will experience God's goodness and wholeness. But so they lost that. And it created a theological crisis, not just dislocation, geog uh, geographically speaking, but dislocation, theologically speaking. And you're tempted to think when things aren't going right, um, maybe, but it, it's, it's possibly the case that Babylon's gods are more powerful than our God. If they weren't, we wouldn't be in this situation. If if Babylon could come into the capital city, and it's not just the capital city, Jerusalem is the home of the great God of Israel, Yahweh. If they could come there and tear down his home and take all of uh, the best of the best away and kill a lot of us, then maybe our God isn't so powerful after all. And so the great uh, twin temptations of the exile is despair and, and or assimilation because you have to make sense of what's going on. And a lot of us, when we can't make sense, despair. Others just get on board with the new way of life without giving it a second thought. Um, now in Isaiah, it's actually where, as far as the, the biblical text is concerned, it's where we get uh, uh, really what's meant by gospel in the New Testament. Um, and really the, the content of the good news in Isaiah is that God is king. Are you sure God is king? Because we're languishing here. But the good news is go tell my people, go tell Jerusalem, God is king. There's three, three beautiful passages. I just put them up there so that you should look at them. They're, they're awesome. But God had already by this time tapped uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus, on the shoulder to help Israel experience a homecoming. God was bringing the exile, this season of discouragement, which was a long season of discouragement. The exiles would discover that it was waiting that they were doing while they were there. They didn't know that. They thought that was now the permanent way of life. 
But now, in their waiting, God has used another foreign king, which would make no sense to you. Of course, Cyrus isn't God's. Actually, Cyrus is called in Isaiah 44, verse 28, he's called Messiah. He's God's anointed deliverer. This is a foreign king who has been sent to bring back God's people and to facilitate a homecoming for the dislocated. Um, and so Isaiah, the, or the prophet here, speaks to them not in instruction manual terms. Do you, know, do you know what I mean by that? When you're in a hard time, what do you want from Joel? Your pastor, your, your, your pastor, preacher, evangelist, what do you want him to do? You want him to give you a super clear, practical sermon that will help you connect the dots and get out of your tough situation. Man, it'd be great if that worked like that. It'd be awesome if there was, if, even if scripture could work as just a, here, just do this and you'll be fine. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, you'll discover that, I think, as you journey on. But but here, uh, the prophet doesn't come with a, all you got to do is do this. Now, in a sense, it's simple. You got to trust in God. But that's not as easy as it sounds, given where you are. But he, instead of giving them an instruction manual, offers them all of this dense poetic speech, verse after verse, uh, that isn't meant to give them an answer on how to get home or help them develop a plan to end, bring this season to a close. That's not what the poetry is there for. It's to jolt them back into the reality that Yahweh actually is reigning. And your situation wasn't precipitated by the fact that Babylon's stronger, but actually Yahweh is intimately involved in all that's happening in your lives. Now, hope to go home bubbled up at least once in the book of Jeremiah. That's where we get our favorite passage, right? Um, uh, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Yeah, the idea here is like you should seek me, not a way out. Uh, your futures are here with me. So why don't you seek me? But that, that idea of we're going to go home and, and end this died out really quickly. So the prophet's words in very poetic speech is to say, you need to see God. You need to rub your eyes and look again. That's what you need to do right now. How you doing? Great. Yeah, okay. Um, so the, uh, let's see, where are we at? Oh, dang it. Yeah, so after uh, there is, there's this discussion in these chapters of, of a servant. And who the servant is seems to change back and forth throughout these chapters. But towards the end of the chapters, beginning in 52, we read of this servant's suffering and death. And somehow this servant of Yahweh, his suffering and death, will result in everything that they had been hoping for. But it won't be them that does it, it will be Yahweh. And after this kind of gruesome yet somehow hopeful poem about the suffering servant, the very next words come to us here in Isaiah 54. Resound, barren one, who has not given birth. Break into, labor, uh, break into sound and holler, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the forlorn are more than the children of the married woman, says Yahweh. Enlarge the space of your tent and let the curtains of your dwellings be stretched out and do not hold back. Lengthen your tent ropes and strengthen your pegs. The, res the result of the work of the suffering dying servant is 
identify with the barren woman. So I want you to now holler and shout and be excited like the barren woman. Now this, the image of a barren woman, I mean, it's kind of like, it's oxymoron, right? Barren women don't have children. But here he's saying, now I think this is obviously a, a reference to the repopulation of Jerusalem, gathering the exiles home. And he's using this, this notion of the barren woman rejoicing because she was not able to have children, but all of a sudden she seems to have more kids than the most fertile among us. She's able, that, that's your experience. That's what it'll be like, and you won't be able to bring it about. But that's what it'll be like for you. Now, Israel has had um, a ton of experience with barrenness. Have you, have you noticed that? If you've tried to read, uh, if you've tried to read the Bible, it, barrenness is something that's firmly on the radar. And it's God's decision, it seems, barrenness. Uh, in, in Genesis uh, chapter 11, there's, there's, a, there's a list of names, and the list ends in Genesis 11 with barrenness, not death, barrenness. These lists in Genesis often end with, you know, so-and-so lived for so however long, and then he died. But this list ends in barrenness. Barrenness, you'll see this in the New Testament, is worse than death actually is to be cut off from any opportunity of an afterlife. No uh, posterity. No, no carrying the family name on, on. It's to be erased. And we're not thoroughly surprised to find a barren woman in this list because we learn all the way back to the story at the garden that God told uh, the woman that uh, both getting pregnant, delivering children, and raising them would be very difficult in this new reality. And so that seems to be the backdrop or the context of what God is about to do in the world. Barrenness is a required theme. And so this, this woman in Genesis 11 who is barren, uh, her name is Sarah, and she is an elderly, uh, uh, like Iraqi Mesopotamian woman with her elderly uh, husband, and they don't worship Yahweh, and they don't live in Jerusalem, and God selects them where no life is possible, and something worth that, worse than death is at work in their life. God selects them to be the people through whom the promise and the blessing come into the world. How are you doing? Well, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop there. He, he tells this barren couple at one point in Genesis 15, uh, come out and look at the stars. You're going to have that many kids. Like, I can't even have kids. And in the meantime, they tried to manipulate the situation and uh, have children by, you know, Abraham take, Sarah says, take my handmaid and you can get her pregnant. That's the way God's going to give us this promised child. So if they do that and for 13 years they're thinking, oh, this is the promised child. And then lo and behold, uh, God appears to them and says, you know, that's not that's not the promised child. I meant it. You're barren and you're going to have a child. You, not metaphorically have a child. You're, you're going to have a child. Is anything too wonderful for Yahweh to do? You think about that. Stop laughing. Stop doubting. It's going to happen. Well, they have a child. And then when, you know, he gets married to a woman. And guess what? She's barren. <laughs> She's also barren. Well, here we go again. How is this supposed to work out? 
something, something worse than death is an obstacle in the way of what God wants to do. How is this going to work out? Well, you needn't worry too much. Just think back to your, uh, to, to your, your mom. And so God opens his wife, Rebecca, he opens her womb. Uh, then she has children. She has two, two children in particular that we're very interested in, uh, Esau and Jacob. Not only is God, by the way, throughout this, selecting the barren woman, he's taking the second born, which undermines all cultural assumptions. We think the, the firstborn is the rightful heir. God says, nah, I don't care about your rules. Selects the, uh, the second born from the barren woman. And when you know Jacob goes and gets uh, married to a couple of women, um, and the one he loves the most, guess what? She's barren. But she's a co-wife. And so she has to share her home with her husband's other wife that he doesn't care as much about. But guess what? She is fertile myrtle. She can't stop it. It's like Jacob looks at Leah and she gets pregnant. But Rachel, his favorite, is, has to live in that rivalry. The barren woman with the fertile woman. But then God again opens Rachel's womb and she has children. Now Genesis chapter, how you doing? Genesis chapters 12 through 50 are, are for good reason, uh, called the patriarchal narratives because they detail the lives of the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, but it would be just as appropriate, perhaps more appropriate in some sense, to think of these chapters as the matriarchal narratives. Uh, in the book of Ruth, another barren-ish woman, um, it is said when, when she gives birth that she will be like Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. Later, it's, they're thinking about these women and really what moves Israel forward is God working through barrenness and sibling rivalry. So when Isaiah says, holler like a barren woman, it's, it's a powerful image, but its potency is found in the fact that that's their origin story. And so at the, it's not just, oh, there's a couple situations where barren women had kids. No, the very beginning of their story starts with three sterile women. That's your beginning. Got anything to, be, to brag about? <laughs> you are a miracle, Jacob. You're a miracle, Israel. You are the work of God through barrenness. So at this pivotal moment in Israel's story, the very beginning, what they find is not, look how awesome they are and what they founded and the laws they wrote and their faith in God. No, it's, they're really jacked up, but look at God uh, brought miracles about through barrenness. That's the backdrop. You would be tempted to locate your privilege and prestige and power elsewhere, but you should think about that because actually you don't have anything to boast about. You're an act of God. Well, it doesn't stop there. There are actually uh, seven instances in the Christian Bible of barren women. 
Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel in the book of Genesis. Uh, we could talk about Tamar also as a sort of barren woman and maybe even Moses' mother as a, uh, there's always hardships surrounding the birth of deliverers in the story of Israel. Uh, but then um, in the book of Judges, the wife of Manoach, she doesn't have a name, that's really all she's called. Um, and then Hannah in the first uh, chapter of the book of Samuel, Shunammite woman in Second uh, Kings 4, and then Elizabeth. You know Elizabeth, right? John the Baptist's mother. Here's what's interesting. Especially for the first three, and Hannah and Elizabeth, these barren women appear at pivotal moments in the story. Hannah sits at the, the head of the tale about the monarchy. This is a, you know, 2 Samuel is all about Israel sort of rejecting Yahweh as their king and setting up their own kind of political monarchical system. They cry out for a king. But before any of that gets going, while Israel is is economically marginalized by the Philistines. They're defeated. They're small. Right after we come out the horror of the book of Judges, we read about Hannah, a barren woman. And she lives, she's also a co-wife. And she lives with another woman. And guess what? She's super fertile. And she has to endure the, the births of her co-wife while she can't have any children at all. And barrenness doesn't just mean, dang it, sorry. Bar, as I said, barrenness doesn't just mean um, you can't have kids and that's too bad. We'll just adopt. Ba barrenness means you, there's no afterlife for this. This notion about the afterlife and heaven and resurrection and all that stuff isn't really on the radar. Not the, the clearest, uh, the, the, the greatest inkling they have about the afterlife is their children. So you're kind of sentenced to death. You're an object of ridicule. And she has to live with another. It's just like the story of Rachel all over again. At the origin story to Israel as a people is a barren co-wife. At the origin story of the monarchy of Israel's great King David is a barren woman. And she will give birth to a sort of kingmaker, seer prophet named Samuel. And Hannah, Hannah is, um, Hannah's why we named our daughter Hannah, because we are, we are barren. I've never said it like that before. That sounds harsh. <laughs> we can't have children. That sounds better. Um, we waited for a long time, and, and this story has meant so much to us, uh, because he, here are these stories of God doing what's impossible, God bringing about a future where it's obvious, just to make sure you understand there is no future possible unless something happens that is not of your own accord. You are not going to cut your way out of this bag. You are not going to devise a strategy strong enough to make it happen. It will require you to depend on your maker. And Hannah, Hannah is a statement of that. The monarchy begins with no hint of an enjoyable or possible future. Look at 1 Samuel 2. Uh, let's see. 
two. We're just going to read 10 verses here. Uh, so Hannah has, has a child, and she promises to give back what God gives her. And most vows in the Bible, it's, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. But this is awesome. This is like, if you do this for me, I'll give it right back to you. I don't want anything out of it. Just whatever you give to me, I will offer right back to you. I won't keep it for myself just to so look, I have a kid now. But upon dedicating her child to God, she makes a pilgrimage up to, the, to church, to the temple, and she offers her, her, her miracle child to the priest as a servant for Yahweh. And it came, uh, oh, I'm in 2 Samuel. I was going to say that didn't sound right. Sorry. One second. Uh, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, there is uh, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him action are, actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength those who were full higher. Uh, those who were full hire themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. And she who has many children lang uh, languishes. But she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. And he lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord. And he set the world on them. And he keeps the feet of his godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against him he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now it's strange for her to pray about giving strength to his king because by this stage in Israel there was no such thing as a king. Um, this barren child is giving her a glimpse even of what's possible in the future. So... Uh, Hannah, like all of people in, people of faith in Scripture, are doing some kind of um, some math in their heads, making sense of, trying to make sense of, look, I couldn't have kids. That was impossible. And here I sit with a child. I didn't think there was a way out of this situation, and now I'm out of it. What else is possible? <laughs> what what couldn't this God do? He did the thing that I thought, barrenness. I mean, he overcame barrenness. So it's like doing some math and thinking. This is what we have to do as, I think, people of faith, is make sense of what we see, see in Scripture. Like, okay, this is the sort of God who is 
it seems, a God of reversals and inversions. She jumps from, I couldn't have kids, to this is the sort of God that takes the poor and he lifts them up. He makes those with no authority to sit, you know, in the Supreme Court seats. This is a God who loves to invert the broken world and put those who are on the bottom, those who are mourning, those who are suffering and languishing and don't even know that they're waiting but are just sitting there in agony, uh, he likes to put them up on the top. This is, so let's, let's get back for a moment to Isaiah. We'll, we'll close out here in a second. Let's get back to Isaiah. So here's this community that's bereft, loss of God, loss of church, loss of uh, singing and hymns and a future. And the best we, some could do is worship the Babylonian gods because the whole Yahweh phase of the world is over. And Isaiah comes and like, are you, are you blind? Are you blind? You don't see that this is God doing this in your life? Like you rejected God. But you've, you've forgotten what sort of God you serve. And so you will rejoice like a barren woman. What you're doing here in exile is waiting. God's not waiting for you. I think this is big. We talk about this all the time. God's just waiting for us to get, it, get faithful. God's just waiting for faithful people to rise up. As if God, God is, God's moving forward in the world is contingent upon how we're doing emotionally. Or how we're thinking clearly. It's like God's not waiting on you, but here's a little secret. You're, you're waiting for him. What are you doing while you wait? Looks like you jump ship. You've, you've ceased to think clearly about God, and so your lives can no longer be construed as lives of hope. It's not, it's not like when you, there's a, there's a, you know, when you do take up a collection in your church and you make a thermometer till you get all the way to the top. It's not like God's watching one of those for faith and like, oh, okay, now I can go down there. They have the faith. It won't be based on their faith. This is what's surprising, uh, scandalizing, challenging about Yahweh. It's a free, surprising act of grace that Israel will get to go home. It's not based on them at all. It's God's decision to lead them home. Not because they're great. In fact, it would be difficult to talk about the exiles as having been super duper faithful. In some sense they were, but not in the sense that going home is a reward. No, going home is a free act of God's mercy and love. Okay, so the, I think the job of the person of faith is just now being defined then. So what do we think we're doing? In, in thinking about God, we, we, are, we are completely dependent on God's acts of mercy. I, I don't mean to say that God can't be moved by us, but what I'm trying to say is that God is so gracious that you need not worry. You're waiting on him. Worship him. Wait for him. Don't jettison your faith. Learn to wait for him. You're in exile and you've forgotten. 
And now what you, the challenge before you is not to get it together, but to humbly worship your God in your lives while you wait. Not because somehow you'll earn it, but because you might not notice it when it comes if you don't. So there's, there's this picture in Isaiah 40 through 55 of a helpless, barren people, a barren city. And the only way the city is going to get pregnant is by an act of God. The only way these exiles are going home is if God is gracious. And Isaiah is here to tell them, it turns out that's the case, guys. He's, he's very gracious and he loves you. He says he rises to show you compassion. So get, get, back, get back to him. <laughs> turn, turn back to him. So what comes from this idea of the barren woman is a theology of inversions and reversals. Now another key moment, what's the next big moment in the story of the Bible if you've read it? New Testament, right? And again, starts with an elderly Jewish couple who, who can't have children. And, and then Mary too, who's not barren, but it's a surprising birth that Mary experiences as well. But this elderly couple begins um, the story of the New Testament. Just like Samuel, John will be born. The, the prophet who goes before King David and the prophet who goes before King Jesus are the product of, or the fruit of the barren womb. God wants it to be very clear. You'll be tempted to boast. It's not, a, it's not about you. It's about him. Worship him, not yourselves. So we find this in the, uh, the Psalms here. Uh, one of the Halal Psalms concludes by saying, just like Hannah, this, here's what our God is like. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them with princes, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her a joyous mother of children. Hallelujah. Look what, look what Mary says. He has shown strength with his arm and he scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts and he has put down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There's this whole image of God being born in moments of hope and suffering to wait on a God who brings about reversals. Another really awesome image is the one of the dry desert that God turns into a lush garden. Uh, that's throughout uh, the Bible as well. But so there's, there's takeaway here. Uh, back to me and here we will close. So I have to learn, <laughs> um, number one, nothing is too wonderful for God like Sarah had to learn. Uh, like Isaiah will tell the prophets, there is uh, a way that God thinks about things and there is a way that I think about things and they're not necessarily the same. My imagination, uh, the boundaries of my imagination stop well before what's possible with God. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I have to, I, I feel kind of like in my life at 40 years old, I can't seem to, I feel stuck. You ever felt stuck? Uh, if you haven't, just stay tuned. You, you will. It's part of life, I, th I hope. I hope I'm not the only one. But I'm stuck, and I keep beating my head against a wall to get what I want, to make it work, right? Okay, it didn't work out in St. Louis. Maybe there's another group that'll want me. Surely someone's going to hire me. I mean, for crying out loud, it's me. 
someone's going to want to hire me. I left St. Louis for bigger and better pastures. Oh, the calls don't come in. <laughs> no one's looking for me. I got to sit with that. I got to, I got, and, and let me tell you, that drilled on hire. You know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to be a teacher then. By, by all means necessary, I'm going to teach the Bible because that's what I'm about to do. And life is about expressing yourself and realizing who you are and getting what you want and being successful. And every time I try to make it happen, it just doesn't. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean it can't work. But I have to face, maybe I need to do one of, one of these. Just put my hands down for a minute. And just pay the high cost of hoping in God. You know what? Maybe, maybe I need to reevaluate. Maybe it's my ambition. Maybe it's not my plan or my level of faith or my creativity or my ability. Maybe God actually wants me to stop idolizing myself and my future and learn to hope. Because this is a God who, and it's not promise that, you know, uh, anything's going to happen, but he's a sort of God who can bring about a child from a sterile womb. And he loves to do that sort of thing. So I think what I need to do is worship this God and humble out. And that's where the real challenge is in my life. Learning to be faithful with what I don't have because God will ultimately be faithful to me. So no more praying just for me. No more praying so that. No more coming to church, so that. No more reading the Bible, so that. But learning to delight in who God is and be okay with being uh, nothing. <laughs> and I'm starting to embrace that as, uh, now in a way that's life-giving. I had been spending so much energy trying to achieve my life, and I had left God in the dust. Does any of this make sense? Maybe this is therapy for me. I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, but so, so our, our waiting, our being people of faith is not a kind of empty time. It is to be filled with whether or not what we want to happen happens. Whether or not your church reaches 2,000 members. Whether or not your career goes as you'd like. Whether or not even you can have a family. Like we have to fill our time looking and gazing at God Worshiping because of who he is. Sacrificing because of who he is. Giving and showing up. You know why Jacob is such a powerful story in Israel? Not because he's a good guy, but because when God weakened him, he didn't let go. He never let go of who God is. He kept showing up. He wanted it. So that's what you get with the barren woman, I think. Um, why don't we have a prayer as we think about the barrenness of the cross, uh, another instance of uh, a place where life is sucked out of the world, uh, being the location of life entering our world at the cross, and think about this God who surprises us with salvation. Yeah. Let's pray. Yeah. Um, Father, we thank you so much that you pay such loving uh, gentle attention to us. Um, we seem to have consumed you. You have, uh, you have blessed the world so much with your love. 
and you ache because of the challenges in your world. You ache when we wander, when we suffer, when we struggle. And you provide us with a hope. And it's a good kind of hope, God, because it forces us to, to have the one hope, to, to lay down pseudo-hope and false dreams so that we can take up a trust in who you are. And Father, we find such meaning and vitality in hoping in you. It's like all of the things we are preoccupied with and obsessed with in our lives uh, are just rendered useless once we find a way to hope in you. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you that the gifts you are trying to give us are greater than the gifts we could make for one another. We thank you for your son. Um, out of his uh, poverty, out of his brokenness, out of his, his dying, uh, comes our lives and our forgiveness. And um, so that we could stand next to Rachel and Rebecca and Sarah and Hannah and all of the barren women and rejoice like all of a sudden we just had a child because our hope was took us off guard. You brought into our lives what we didn't expect. We thank you. Thank you so much for, for Sunday morning being able to gather, open scripture, worship, and pray. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.